Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue in our series in the second half of American history. In podcast number 38, our previous one, we covered the pretense of Americans living in this false sense of security and safety with the onset of the advancement of nuclear weapons by the Soviet Union, launching the United States and the Soviet Union into what became quickly dubbed or called the Cold War. We looked at the creation of the United Nations, the origins of Winston Churchill's Iron Curtain speech, the Truman Doctrine, the Marshall Plan, as well as the Soviet response with what became known as the Berlin Airlift. We also then looked at the organization of United States intelligence with the CIA and the National Security Council, as well as NATO and the ensuing Warsaw Pact. So as we continue on now in podcast number 39, we're going to look at the development within the United States of the advancement in nuclear weapons called the super or thermonuclear bomb. This is where sometimes we find in the press people erroneously confusing the two terms or using several terms for the same thing when in fact they're not. Nuclear weapons encompasses either a splitting of or a fusing of atoms. But a thermonuclear blast refers to the fusion bomb where the hydrogen atoms are fused together, essentially harnessing the energy that drives the sun. Ironically enough, scientists were more convinced that fusion was possible before fission or the splitting of atoms was. But in order to fuse atoms, humankind had to create such an intense amount of heat so quickly that it was deemed impossible until we recognized the heat generated from splitting the uranium or plutonium atoms gives us that intense heat that we would need instantaneously, which then paved the way for what became known as thermonuclear or fusion bombs. Please note that there is, in almost all practicality, no comparison between fusion bombs and fission bombs. What the United States dropped over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Hiroshima was a fission bomb splitting uranium, Nagasaki was plutonium. We have never used fission, excuse me, fusion bombs in warfare, and let's hope that humankind never does. But just to give you an, an idea of how drastically the destructive capabilities of these two weapons are, I encourage you to go to your search engine and pause, it, pause the podcast here and type in atomic versus thermonuclear or fission versus fusion bombs. And what you'll see, I recommend that you go to the site by the Atomic Heritage Foundation. And what you will see is a series of an image, hopefully, 
that you'll see with a series of black clouds against a light blue or what appears to be cloudy backdrop. And you'll see overall five black mushroom clouds. At a glance, you'll, you'll see and think, no, there's only three what I'm looking at. And if you're, in a sense, you're right. If you look down to the bottom left, it'll say the first mushroom cloud, Mike, which is the Mike shot, then the Bravo shot next to that or in the middle, and then to the right, that drastically uh, much larger, taller Tsar Bomba that the Soviet Union detonated. And you might ask, well, where's Hiroshima and Nagasaki? They are so small in comparison that if you look to the left, that circle, that's where you see the Hiroshima bomb and Trinity that was detonated on July 16th, 1945. They are so small that without focusing in, you actually can't even see the names on the mushroom clouds themselves. That is a pictorial way of describing what I could not do and an hour's worth of talking about the difference between the destructive capabilities. There is, in all practical purposes, no comparison. The destructive power is simply awesome. Of course, I mean that in a negative way, but unfortunately a realistic way. Please note that President Harry Truman, it did ultimately have to sign off on the United States pursuing this technology with word coming in that most likely the Soviet Union would be pursuing it at all cost and any other potential rivals in the future, President Truman felt he had no choice but to produce the technology and continue on in what would now become known as the arms race. Please note though, folks, just a clarification here, arms race is usually credited with the development of the nuclear weapon of nuclear weapons but the fact of the matter is that humankind has been engaged in an arms race from the very first time that a human being picked up an object in order to defend him or herself so yes we are going well back to the stone age when we don't know exactly of course who it was or when it was or even within a specific time frame but at some point, as humans were evolving, we started to look towards objects to defend ourselves in a way that we felt we could not defend ourselves with our own body parts. That, as I tell my students in World History One, that really is the origins of what we call the arms race. Sadly, the nuclear arms race is merely another level on that ongoing contest. So the other th part there item that I'd like to cover chronologically in this time period is what became known as the Korean War. Now, right there, when I say Korean War, some listeners may want to correct me and say, not technically that wasn't a war. In the sense that a president, President Truman in this case, never asked for a declaration of war, you would be correct. We have also never technically resolved this war. As of 2023, the Korean War, in terms of hostilities, is still continuing. The war, or the conflict itself, the heated contest, started in 1950, specifically on June 25th, when North Korean forces invaded the South, backed by China and, we believe, the Soviet Union. It would last until 1953 with the onset of the Eisenhower administration. 
The land itself in Korea, again, I encourage you to stop the podcast here and go to your search engine and look up uh, under images a map of North and South Korea and look at a map of East and West Germany. Even though, as we know it today, East and West Germany don't exist, the fact of the matter is that Germany in essence reflected or was reflected in the division of north versus south korea with north korea and south korea divided or it will retrospectively be divided at the 38th parallel because the north koreans invaded the south unprovoked the united states felt with or without the united nations to respond with military force in terms of the conflict itself, I'm going to leave that to the history books and other podcasts by other historians in terms of what took place chronologically throughout the conflict. But what I'd rather focus on in our limited time here is two important outcomes of that war. Number one was, quote unquote, who was in charge? This would be the second major time in American history that a sitting American president would technically fire a general, in this case, a five-star general by the name of Douglas MacArthur. Douglas MacArthur, again, as I sit here recording the podcast, I look over across the way at my memoirs, uh, his memoirs that I have in my office. Please note, he is a man that commands and deserves the utmost of respect. If he walked in through to my office right now, I'd shoot out of this chair in honor of him and respect for his history and what he had done for the American people. But likewise, I would also look him in the eye and tell him that he was wrong when he defied the orders of President Truman not to pursue the North Koreans north of the Yellow River that separates China from the Korean Peninsula. MacArthur felt as though President Truman was tying an arm behind his back and trying to execute the conflict. At some point, President Truman told General MacArthur that he would and could pursue the North Koreans all the way up to the Yellow River, but to stop there. But MacArthur got more and more discouraged, frustrated, and angry when he began to realize that not only was he fighting North Koreans, he was fighting Chinese forces as well. North Korean weapons that were confiscated by the Americans and the South Koreans were right from China. China, therefore, is party to this conflict and therefore should suffer the repercussions of that decision. On the surface, most Americans agreed with MacArthur, but were we really going to turn this peninsula war into the war on mainland China? President Truman didn't want to go that far and therefore told MacArthur to stand down. When word was received that MacArthur was planning on moving forward, Truman, calling MacArthur back home, relieved him of his command. It was an infamous event that would end what was a stellar career for that man known as Douglas MacArthur. Please note too, the second part that I'd like to highlight is what is basically were the consequences of this conflict. 
Because America looked as though it had prevailed in securing the south part of the Korean Peninsula, again south of the 38th parallel, it was a preview, sadly, of Vietnam, another conflict that, as we know, technically has already started in terms of American financial involvement, but, but of course would continue on with eventual American boots on the ground in Vietnam. But it was a preview of what became known as the domino theory, that unlike Neville Chamberlain, who will acquiesce to a, a, a military dictator, America standing with NATO at this point and the newly formed United Nations, we would not let either a Chinese or Soviet dictator confiscate one square mile of land without America and our allies fighting back. And that's what we did. The conflict also legitimized the United Nations. A third thing that it did was that it confirmed the theory of containment. Going back again to George Kennan's telegram, that if we, the United States and our allies, can keep the Soviet Union within the exact same borders as was defined at the conclusion of the European and Asian theaters of war in 1945, that eventually they would self-destruct. Which then leads us to my fourth point here, which was this quote-unquote war, when would it be over? And as we know, for any of my listeners, even keeping a half an eye on current events, it still is not over. With the current dictator of North Korea continually launching different ballistic missile tests and doing underground nuclear tests and saber rattling constantly going on between the North and the South, with the United States sending in more forces now than we have in the previous decades. We still have a minimum of 15 naval bases just in the South Korean Peninsula. No, this conflict, while not hot, is of course unfortunately far from resolved. Please note too that this was one historical excursion, the only one so far to date, that I had actually purchased the necessary paperwork in order to visit myself the DMZ, the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. Please note, listeners, that I have been to a lot of dangerous places in my travels around the world. Not only necessarily places that were dangerous, but in some cases going at very dangerous times. But at the time when there was no hardware on my left hand, with a wife back at home and little ones calling me dad, and the, of course, as they say, the youth being on my side, I didn't hesitate to go to many dangerous places around the world. But the morning that I was supposed to go visit the DMZ, I put one foot on that bus that was supposed to take me, and I turned around and backed off and gave my ticket to somebody else. It's not that I didn't trust the South Koreans or the South Korean military. It's just that there were too many accounts of tourists and visitors getting kidnapped somewhere near or in the DMZ. And then the North Koreans holding that individual hostage for American currency. Occasionally we see in the news 
a former American president, such as uh, Jimmy Carter, number 39, who would try to work on behalf of a relatively famous American citizen who was kidnapped by the North Koreans. So the North Koreans somehow, one way or another, confiscate Christopher E. Kinsella. And they're going to call my mom and dad at the time and say, yep, if you want your kid back, you pay up a million dollars. I could see and hear my mom and dad, specifically my mom, laughing so hard she'd have tears coming down her eyes. You want us to pay you a million dollars to get my kid back? Keep him for a couple of days and he'll be you'll be paying us a million bucks to take him back. Now, it wasn't going to happen, folks. And for that reason, again, I stood down. Part of me sometimes regrets that I didn't go. But in the same token, I understood my concern then. It was as legitimate then, sadly, as it still is today. But the conflict was resolved in the Eisenhower administration, a tentative ceasefire, after, unfortunately, 36,576 soldiers, American soldiers, were or casualties that we had endured. So that brings us to this part of the podcast. And then moving on is we get into the Red Scare in America. The premise of the Red Scare, this United States Congress holding countless trials, looking for people, American citizens, that they could be charged with espionage. This started because of the Manhattan Project when then President Harry Truman leaned over to Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin and informed him that the Americans had successfully detonated the world's first nuclear device. Stalin not only knew that before Truman had even told him, it has been estimated that Stalin might have actually heard about the news before Truman did. But it made true. It made Stalin and the Soviet Union extremely nervous that Americans withheld this information for so long, and that England knew before the Soviet Union did, when supposedly we were equal allies. This is the espionage in the Manhattan Project was the premise of the Red Scare, and now with the United States seeking to produce thermonuclear weapons. We were even more concerned that with the espionage continuing, that the Soviet Union might launch the world's first thermonuclear device before the United States gets that opportunity. There was no doubt that the Soviet Union was catching up in the arms race, and that knowledge, coupled with the panic of nuclear war, provided the foundation for the infamous senator from the state of Wisconsin, Joe McCarthy, Joe, Joseph McCarthy, to act with literally no restraints. Almost anybody and everybody could be accused by McCarthy and his followers, to the point that good people like Dr. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the Manhattan Project, had his security clearance revoked because of McCarthy. On the same token, the truly famous American hero, five-star general George Marshall, also was called in front of the McCarthy Commission. And sadly, President Eisenhower 
was reluctant to step forward to defend his close friend and ally. It was, in all intents and purposes, a modern-day version of the Salem witch trials. But with the fear of nuclear war, for a while, McCarthy had free reign until eventually he would be called to task for his actions, where he more or less was accused of having, as was stated, no decency. McCarthy would eventually be run out of Congress and die of a heart attack. But nevertheless, the damage was done as America was so suspicious. But even through to the 21st century, with surveys done by Time magazine every so often, nuclear weapons is still a primary concern for most Americans. That brings us then to the end of the major events of the early part of the 1950s. I'm going to stop the recording now, which is definitely shorter than most of my recordings, which I try to get closer to 30 minutes. But the 40th podcast part in this series, I want to be a standalone. And the reason being is because as American history continues to progress, Americans will be introduced to terms that before we never had to think about, or in some cases, never even knew what they meant because the terms didn't exist. Things like geopolitical stability, a bipolar world, multipolar stability, things like, for example, first strike capability, mad doctrine, second strike capability. What I'm going to do rather than, of course, I'll explain these as I introduce them throughout the podcast remaining remaining podcasts in the second half of American History series, I'm going to create the 40th podcast as a standalone so that one could see then from beginning through to the 21st century, the advancement of nuclear weapon technology. After that, the 41st podcast, I will then continue with a chronological survey of the second half of American history. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com, and email me with any questions or comments you might have. And if you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks very much. Have a great day.